Good morning and welcome to this teaching, Building Generationally Kingdom Management Part 1. This is session four. We've been through three sessions so far. We have a total of six. The first session was Foundations to Rule, thinking biblically about how to execute the creation mandate, which is the primary mandate of mankind, and how to do that in a way that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Session two is to recognize enduring purpose, recognizing that God has a purpose for every person and every organization, every family. He has a purpose for all generations. He has a purpose for all time. So we have a God who thinks very big and he's challenging us to think with him. And that's a challenge for us. We don't want to think at that level. We are challenged and taxed and vexed to think at that level. But we have a God who graciously gives us the ability as we seek him faithfully and humbly that he will give us the ability to see what we need to see on the bigger scale. Session three is understanding that C4 people are the building blocks. In life, you will be part of organizations, families, some kind of workplace organization, a probably a Christian community and a society at large. And you need to understand how to properly function in those contexts. The C4 principle is a tool to guide you into how to do that. And it's a tool for leaders and guiding them in how to build organizations that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord. And session four today, we'll talk about leading by serving, servant leadership. It's a common idea. Uh, you hear frequently people talking about it. It's, uh, there are many aspects to servant leadership. And we wanna give you hopefully a taste of a biblical worldview of servant leadership. Keep in mind what you commonly hear may or may not be biblical and only that which is biblical is truly aligned with God. That which is not biblical is aligned with the world and so we want to be able to make that distinction. Session five which we'll do next time will be engage in generational transfer. We'll get into the practical aspects of how to build organizations and how to do it multi-generationally and finally, session six is tips on how to do all of this, how to build organizations to rule, to obey God's creation mandate in his context and help accomplish and fulfill his purpose on this earth. So that's where we're going. So let's begin with just a, a glimpse into servant leadership. And I'm going to show you a clip from a movie that I think speaks of um, servant leadership, probably as good as we can see it uh, in the natural we're going to spend most of our time looking at Jesus and how he led as a servant leader. But I want to start here and see how we humans can see something of this and how we can display it. So this is the movie called We Were Soldiers. This is uh, Mel Gibson playing Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. And he's given his speech to his soldiers as they're getting ready to depart for battle. And you can see there are many family members here. So they're still here in the United States. They're getting ready to board planes, to fly to a foreign country and to fight. And so before they do that, he has this time with them where he gives them a little speech. So it's just about a one minute clip. Let's hear what he has to say. We are going into battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this I swear, before you and before Almighty God, that when we go into battle, 
I will be the first to set foot on the field, and I will be the last to step off, and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So you can see, this is a very moving speech. It's a very committed commander here. And you see some very, very important traits. Number one, he's a very humble man. He recognized that he was making a promise to bring them home, but he couldn't promise whether they would be dead or alive. And secondly, he was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to be the first man on the field and the last man off. That meant he sacrificed his life. The first people to, to do anything in battle are many times the ones that get, that get the worst treatment, and they're the ones that many times are killed. But he was willing to put his life on the line for his men. He valued his men. They were important to him. He led by example, and he modeled integrity. That is, his internal conversation and his external actions were congruent. This is the epitome of a man that is seeking to walk faithfully to principles that align with the Word of God. So this hopefully was inspiring to you. Now let's talk a little bit about biblical principles of servant leadership. And starting here, we're going to go look at the greatest command. The greatest command is given to us in Matthew 22, verse 37, and other places as well, but specifically, I'm looking at that text where Jesus is responding to the question, what is the greatest command? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy where it also says, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. So this is like full, complete devotion to God. That's what love is. Now keep in mind, love means to sacrificially serve the purpose of God in another. We use love in English in a variety of ways. We can talk about love very casually. We can talk about it erotically as in as in relational love with a, with a husband or a wife. And we could talk about it biblically in terms of sacrificially serving the purpose of God in another. So this is the way we will talk about it today is the biblical definition of love. This is the seminal value of Christianity, meaning that all other values emanate from this. The Greek word is agapao, that's the verb. <clears throat> And there's a noun form of it as well. Like in English, there's a noun form of love and a verb form, same way in the Greek language. And it's all about sacrificial living. Now let's go on and look at, to, look at Mark 10, where Jesus addresses the essence of what it is to be a servant leader. And hopefully you can see this is, this is very closely connected to Matthew 22, because to be a servant leader requires sacrificial love. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers, and that's the word arco, which is, refers to the chief, the, the most, the ones who have the authority to make choices. Those are the rulers of the ethnic groups, the Gentiles, lord it over them, meaning they will abuse that authority. They will abuse their power. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. In other words, the, the leadership style that I'm calling you to is different from the world. 
It's different from what is common, different what you commonly experience. He says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And he uses the word diakonos. And diakonos is the word that we translate ministry from. It's a word that means to execute the commands of another. So we are to serve each other as God's agents executing his commands and how we relate to each other. That's the idea. And whoever would be first among you would be a slave. Now he uses the word doulos. And doulos is someone who sets aside his personal cares and concern and interest to serve those of another. That's what a slave is. So for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the essence of what servant leadership is. It is selfless action. It is action aligned with the will and ways of God. It is action that supports the will and ways of God in the lives of others. That's what it means to be a servant leader. So leaders love people. They, in other words, we fulfill the mandate to love God by loving people by, and serving the purpose of God in them. Or leaders love sacrificially serving the purpose of God. Always doing what's in the highest good as defined by God in every person that you're dealing with. John 10, 11 puts it this way. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So this is the essence of servant leadership. It is biblically defined. It is biblically modeled in Jesus. And it takes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to do this. We will never do this well in and of ourselves. We have to have the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and empower us to be able to do this. So the core idea here is the purpose of God, serving the purpose of God. And to do that, we have to remind ourselves of what Scripture says about the purpose of God. And in a prior teaching on this, I talked about the four aspects of purpose. So let's go back and review that for a minute. The core idea here is that God is sovereign, intentional, and strategic. He is in charge of his universe. He's going to accomplish his sovereign pleasure, and he's doing that. He's executing. Everything happens according to his will. Even the difficult things, the painful things, the challenging things, the vexing things of life all happen according to the will of God and his ways. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand because it seems like so many things happen that are contrary to the will of God. Keep in mind that God's will is never thwarted by any action of man. God is executing a meta-narrative that he has planned from the beginning, and it is perfect, and it will fully be accomplished, and the, the full purpose of God will be fulfilled totally in the, over the course of time. But it's done in various ways. First of all, it's done individually. God has a specific will for every individual, a purpose for every individual. So a servant leader understands that. A servant leader knows that to employ someone, to utilize someone in some setting, an organization, or to accomplish some mission, you have to use them according to the divine design that's in them. So you use the C4 principle as a tool to help you discover that design and then help you utilize that person appropriately. If you use people inconsistent with the divine design, 
then you are you're you're abusing them. Now, please understand that there are always a, a process in discovering divine design. So when you are employing people, there may be times when you try various things to see how they do to discover what's in them. That's perfectly legitimate. As long as you understand the objective that you're after is not to use them just for your agenda. The objective is to discover the purpose of God in them to more correctly, more precisely utilize them according to the will and ways of God. So that's how proper leaders think. So they start with individual design. Every organization has a purpose from God. There is no organization that exists that God has not ordained. He has called every organization to exist. He's called every organization to serve his purpose. Leaders have to understand they're not in existence to make money. They're in existence to obey the will of God and money will be a byproduct as God wills for the organization. So we're never after money. We're always after alignment with God. We also have to recognize the generational purposes. God has created every family line, everyone on this planet that's ever lived, ever will live, that lives now has been divinely ordained by God and put into a family context. And we must respect the purpose of God for the family. We must be asking what is the purpose of God? And there may be multiple purposes you look at any one family, you don't see everybody doing the same things. They do different things. But you will also see commonality. You will see patterns. So recognize those patterns. Support those patterns. Recognize the sovereign hand of God in putting that destiny and purpose into that family and support that. And finally, we have to recognize the meta narrative, the big story of history that God is executing. It is in play now. And it will go on until the end of time. It began in Genesis 3.15. It goes on to Revelation 20, which is the parousia where Christ comes back in the final great white throne judgment. And we have the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the final judgment. All is resolved. What was lost in Genesis 3 was the uncontested rule of Christ. What was restored when he comes back in Revelation 20 is his uncontested rule. During that time frame, he still ruled, but it was contested. So this is why scripture tells us that at the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. He's always been Lord, but people are resisting that, contesting it. And so he's saying at the end, there will be no contest. His unconditional and unequivocal rule will be settled. And so that's, that's the meta-narrative we're in. We tend to think about the meta-narrative in terms of people get people, quote, saved. That's the terminology of today. That's a fairly new idea that's come about in about the last 300 years, and it really doesn't reflect Scripture all that well. Let's look at what Scripture says about itself. It tells us that God is doing two things over history. One is restoring the uncontested rule of Christ that was lost at the fall. The second thing is he's building a people for himself. At his sovereign pleasure, and it's not all people, which that really bothers us. But we have to let God be God and know he has a purpose that's much greater than we can imagine. So we're here to serve God's purpose, every aspect of God's purpose. True leaders recognize that and seek to do that. 
Now, the problem that we all have, and leaders are no exception to this, is the problem of shame. The problem of shame began at the fall. Genesis 3-7, Adam and Eve have just eaten of the fruit that they were told not to eat of, and then their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. In other words, they knew they were unacceptable, unfit for the presence of God. That's the essence of shame. You know you are not fit to be in the presence of whatever being you're in the presence of. So for all of us, deep down, we know we're not fit to be in the presence of God because of sin. And the only way that changes is the work of Jesus to transfer us into from orphanity, which is the default state of fallen mankind, into sonship. Sonship refers to male or female in right relationship with Christ. We are clothed with righteousness, which makes us fit, and we're no longer filled with shame. So the core problem in the universe is orphanity. Orphans don't seek to serve God's purpose. We are in rebellion against God. We're, we're trying to contest the rule of Christ. Jesus, as Lord, is Lord of everything, and we, we contest that. We deny it. We may say we agree with it, but in our actions, we deny it. Our actions are more powerful than our words at revealing truth in us. So we have to understand this is a, a sinful the sinful pattern of orphanity is innate in every human being from beginning, from our birth. We are orphans. We are trying to live separated from the Father. The ultimate orphanity is, where, is, the, is the final death, which is separation for eternity from God. So death is separation from God, and we have to know that that is the default state that we, we come into this world in, and we have no right to claim anything from God. God has created us. We're born in this fallen state, and he, through his mercy and grace, has chosen to give us a way to escape orphanity, both now and in the next existence and for eternity through Christ. That's the only way to escape orphanity. Now, some ways that you're going to see orphanity manifesting in people Everyone, and in particular leaders, are just three quick ones here. There's a lot of ways, but I wanted to single out these three for you to look at and consider. Number one is the failure to support the call of God in others. That, to me, is probably one of the most prominent uh, markers of orphanity that I've seen in, in, in professing Christian leaders, is a failure to support the call of God in others. I'm talking about people that may be church leaders that cannot do that. And one of the markers of that is the failure to obey Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Now, that's a text you may have heard about. You probably haven't heard a lot about it because at least my experience in Christianity, I don't see much focus on this. I, feel, I see kind of a superficial glossing over of this text. But let me just read it to you and remind you what it says. It says, let us consider... Uh, this is the writer to the Hebrews talking to Christians. Let us consider how to stir up one another. We're not used to stirring up each other. We think that's kind of unkind, but yet we're called to stir up each other because we need that. We need a challenge. We need to be stimulated. We need to be questioned. So let us stir up one another to love and good works. 
Love, remember, this is agape, sacrificially serving the purpose of God in another. That's what real love is. And a good work, remember what a good work is. A good work is a work that aligns with the will and ways of God. Good is a divine attribute. So when you say good's anything, you're saying <clears throat> whatever you're talking about, you're talking about alignment with God. A good work is work aligned with God. A good work is consistent with the will of God. A good work is done according to the ways of God and the timing of God for the glory of God. That's what a good work is. It is not a good work because we call it a good work. It's not a good work because you think it's a good work. It's a good work because God has created and called you and empowered you to do it. That's what makes it a good work. So finding those good works that you've been created to do is challenging. Now, let me just take a moment to remind all of us, we are not brought into out of our shame and our orphanity through our works. That is impossible. Remember in Genesis 3, 7, the first reaction of Adam and Eve was try to create garments for themselves. That's a symbolism for trying to work their way into acceptance with God. Cannot do it. It's impossible. So the only way, in fact, that's the big theme of the Old Testament, is you can't do it. So the only way for us to have right standing, to be delivered from our vanity into sonship and daughtership with God, to be in the family of God, is we have to be born again. That is the sovereign work of God, period. We do nothing to deserve it, deserve it nothing to earn it. It's a gift of God, totally. Our faith is not something we do to earn it. Faith is a gift to respond to the regenerate work of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So we got to be clear. You do not never can work your way into acceptance with God or right standing with God. So you don't work your way to God. But once you have come to God, you are called to good works. Your works reveal that you have been adopted into the family of God. So you're not, you're not saved by works, you're saved to works. That's a better way to think about it. You're not saved by works, but you're saved to work, to do a work assignment that God has ordained for you to do. Hebrews 10 tells us that we should be gathering together to do this. And yet today we don't have practices, at least I'm not aware of many communities that have practices where they gather just as the Christians to do what Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, which is to stir up each other to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of judgment approaching. So we should be doing that. That would be a really good practice for us in the Christian world to begin to embrace. So one of the markers of our vanity is the failure to really help each other get on track to discover the purpose of God for our lives so we can do the things that God has created and called us to do. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that we are, we are saved to do good works. We have a work assignment in the meta narrative that God's prepared for us to do from the foundation of the world and we are saved to do that. So remember that text. I'll just quote it to you real quickly. I'm going to paraphrase it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith doesn't come from you. It's a response to the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. For 
God has created you specifically for a work assignment that he's called you to do in his meta narrative. Now that is the sense, I think, of the text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I commend that to you for your consideration. So number one marker of orphanity and leaders is they cannot support the call of God and others well. Number two is they tend to build towers of Babel. Now you should be familiar with that if you've been around Dennis's teaching and my teaching for any length of time. You've heard a lot of conversation about this because this was a pivot point. One of the pivot points in scripture where what is in man is being revealed in the story. You see, after the flood, uh, mankind was not transformed through the flood. A lot of people were, were wiped out. They were judged. But mankind's base nature was the same, and that's what's being revealed in this story. And so this is a story where people decide to stop obeying God. God had charged mankind to spread all over the earth and be his ruling agents. And they decided to stop and build a monument to themselves, to glorify themselves. And so God judged that. And that's the reason we have multiple languages, because God's judgment was very simple. He just made it so they couldn't communicate. Just, you can't communicate, you can't build anything. So that was the judgment. It's a universal judgment, which suggests there's a universal problem. And so the tendency we all have in our, our orphanity is to build Towers of Babel, which is monuments to ourselves, monuments about self-glory. Look how great I am. Look how important I am. Look how significant I am. Look how much power I have. Look how much control I have. All of those kinds of things. That's all Towers of Babel thinking. <clears throat> when you see leaders who cannot get past that, they are orphan leaders. They're people who have not been able to mature enough in Christ to really build selflessly. And finally, I want to point out that the, a marker of orphanity is to think and act single generationally. That's narcissistically. That's self-centered. And a great example of this was the greatest king of the Israelites, none other than the great Hezekiah. He did some uh, great things and he did some wicked things and he was judged. And in the part of, part of this judgment, he was uh, told he was going to die. He begged for mercy. God gave him mercy, extended his life, but he still judged him. And what he basically did was defer the judgment until after Hezekiah was gone. Now, that should be bothersome to any true leader, servant leader, who cares not just about himself. He cares more about his heirs. Instead, Hezekiah only thought about himself, for he said, that would be great. If, my, if a judgment, my judgment on me goes on my sons, that's great because then I will leave and live in peace and security all my days. That's out of Second Kings chapter twenty, verses seventeen through nineteen. Now that's just that's such a a sad testimony, but yet that is how orphanity, in fact, impacts leaders. They become very narcissistic. It's, everything's about them. Everything's about their agenda. They use people to serve their purpose. They don't really care about anyone else. So these are markers of orphanity. Now, let me give you some markers from the life of Christ about how to truly live as a godly servant leader. That's a good thing to know. Now, this is not an exclusive list. It's just a representative of list of things that you can find in scripture. And I'm gonna illustrate this. I'm gonna give you a little video clip after this 
of, uh, of from a movie that illustrates these very traits. So let's just talk about this, these seven traits here real quickly. Number one, servant leaders will define the process of discipleship. They'll define the process of how to do what it is you're supposed to be doing. And I so cite Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is the way Jesus lived. He said, you come do what I'm doing. Furthermore, Jesus demonstrated this very specifically. For example, in John 13, 12 through 14, he is, he is uh, with his disciples in the upper room and he's giving them an example. He says, uh, you call me teacher and Lord and you, you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, which he had just done, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Now washing feet was kind of a lowly task. It was a task for servants. And many times the feet of the people, your guests were pretty dirty and maybe stinky. But this was a really humble thing to do, to show honor and respect for a guest in your home. And this is how Jesus said, this is how you serve. Yeah, I am the leader here. I'm your teacher and I'm serving you like a servant. Then number three, he said, uh, you need direction. Uh, now, when you, you draw near to Jerusalem and come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. You see, when Jesus was going in to his uh, to Jerusalem for the final time, uh, he knew he, he was going to be arrested, wrongly tried and convicted and crucified. He knew that, and so he he is. This is a very pivotal point, and he's got he's orchestrating events and he's directing things. You go and get that donkey, bring that donkey here, and I'm going to ride that donkey in. So this is the way that true servant leaders work, is they recognize what God is doing, and they begin to direct things to bring alignment with his will and his ways. Servant leaders don't accept excuses. Uh, is, this is the story of the feeding the 5,000 where... <clears throat> Jesus was actually grieving the loss of John the Baptist, and these people follow him out into the country. Well, they didn't have McDonald's and, you know, Domino's Pizza or DoorDash or any of that kind of stuff at their convenience. So they're out there, and it's getting late, and there's a bunch of people. 5,000 is probably just the men. You could double or triple that, or maybe quadruple it. You've got a huge crowd of people, and he, Jesus tells his disciples to give them something to eat. In fact, he commands them to give them something to eat. And their excuse is, well, there's too many people. We don't have that much food. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, I'm going to show you how to do it. You see, Jesus is very, very clear. When he gives a command, it needs to be done. No excuses. No excuses. And if I've got to step in and show you how to do it, I'll do that. So they don't accept excuses, and we're big on excuses. Adam and Eve in the garden, as they went through their litany of trying to deal with the, their fallen condition, the last thing that they did to try to justify themselves before God was blame God. Anytime you blame anyone else, you're not taking responsibility. That's the epitome of orphanity. Jesus didn't put up with orphanity. Next thing is Jesus held high standards. Luke 22:42 says this, Father, it is your will. Take this cup from me. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's asking the Father, do I have to die on the cross? 
And the father says, yes. So Jesus, when he made his request, he, he conditioned it on, I don't want my will to be done. I don't want to go to the cross, but I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. That's more important than my will. And so he's submitting to the will of God, even if it meant pain and suffering, which it did. So those are very high standards. Most of us, uh, we don't have the courage to really submit to suffering and pain and sacrifice. That's not our norm. But true servant leaders will sacrifice. Next, true servant leaders use life experiences to train. So here's an example. When Jesus first called his, his disciples, uh, and keep in mind, he did call them. They didn't call him. They didn't choose him. He chose them. So when he called them, they were fishing. They had just spent the night fishing and had caught nothing. Jesus had an early morning Bible study. And so he is, he's arrived there with his the people he's teaching about the same time they're arriving from a failed fishing expedition the night before. They're cleaning their nets, ready to go home and go to bed. And Jesus is, you know, asked to borrow the boat so he could be pushed away from shore a little bit so he could talk to his class a little bit easier. And then when it's over, he says to them, uh, jump in the boat here with me and push off. We're going to, we're going to catch some fish. And of course, that had to be a humorous situation there where here you have a carpenter telling fishermen where to fish and how to fish, but they were, they were respectful. They clearly had regard for Jesus. They knew him. They probably didn't know him well in terms of him as the Christ, but they knew he was something special. So they honored him. And then they're shocked when they get this windfall prophet of fish. And so the text reads, and when Peter and all who were with him were astonished at this catch of fish, which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when I give you a windfall. Don't be afraid when I show up with some kind of supernatural action that you cannot explain. Because from now on, I'm going to make, I'm going to make you catch men. I'm going to transform you into another kind of fisherman fishermen that you have never thought of before. And so this is, a, this is just using life experiences here to make points, to, to explain things, to call people out. This is what true servant leaders do. And finally, servant leaders, true servant leaders, they hold disciples accountable. So this is the story of the Minas, Luke 19. Jesus has, is at Zacchaeus' house. He recognizes that his, his followers are getting ready to enter Jerusalem that last time, and his disciples don't really understand what's going to happen. They don't really get it that he's not going to establish the kingdom of God fully at that time. He's going to, in fact, he's going to go away, and he's going to now build his ecclesia. They don't really get that. So he gives them a parable to illustrate to them that there's going to be a different future than what you think. And what he, what he points out here is that you have a role to play and you're going to be held accountable to what, what role you play. This is important. So he says this, he commanded those servants to whom he had given the money. Remember the story, he gave each of his servants a mina and he comes back. This is the accountability. Speaks of him coming back at the end of this age that we're living in now. And he calls them that each one may share what they've done with their mina. 
We think the miner represents our time, our talent, our treasure, the things that we have opportunities to do. What have we done with those? The first one came, said, Master, your miner has earned 10 more. A very humble way to put it. It wasn't me. It wasn't my, my prowess as a businessman or as an investor. It was your miner and you. And so he hears the sound that we all want to hear at the end of the age. Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a little, take charge of 10 cities. In other words, in some way, our status and our responsibilities in the next existence are tied to our faithfulness here. So that means what we do here counts. It's important. So you need to know we will be held accountable. And Jesus was very clear on that with his disciples. Okay, so now I want to just illustrate this to you. What I've got here is a clip from the Karate Kid. And this is uh, Mr. Miyagi, who is uh, training Daniel, uh, teaching him. Daniel is not a really eager student. He's motivated, but he's got a bad attitude. So Mr. Miyagi's got to deal with a very typical orphan. Now, Mr. Miyagi is not functioning like an orphan servant leader. He's functioning like a like, like Jesus. And you're going to see some of the same traits we just went through with Jesus demonstrated in Mr. Miyagi's interaction with Daniel. So just take a look and learn. Sand the floor. How did you do that? Shut up! Sand the floor. Stand up. Show me Sandofloa. Sandofloa. Big sucker. Sandofloa. Sandofloa. Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Concentrate. Look in my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me penta fence. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Other side. Look, I always look, I. Show me paint the house. Side, side. Lock wrist. Side, side. Side, side. Yes. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me painter fence. Face! Face! This! This! Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand of floor. Hat! Face! 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 Hey, look, I 
Well, you can see from this that um, Daniel was put in quite a, quite a workout there, but it's what he needed. It's the workout by the master, by someone that was selflessly serving the purpose of God in him, helping him to develop the skill and ability to fight the battles he's been called to fight. That's what we're all called to do. So you see these key traits of servant leadership that Jesus displayed were displayed right here in this simple example from a movie clip. The discipleship process was defined. It's demonstrated. It's directed. There were no excuses. There were high standards. Life experiences were used, and they hold the disciple accountable. So this is the way of the Lord. This is the way of true servant leadership. This is the way we should all learn to lead. Now, what I've got is a little exercise for you, which is basically the, uh, the, the traits that were demonstrated by Jesus and then illustrated by the Karate Kid video clip. Uh, and it gets you to rate yourself, uh, basically how well you display those traits. So I encourage you to do this. Uh, it's seven points. So you score yourself zero very low to 10 very high. It's an analog scale. Use any number in between that describes what you think your state is. And at the end, you take the, your total score and divide it by 0.7 to normalize your score. So that's how it works. I encourage you to do that. That's a great exercise for everyone to evaluate yourself against Jesus and how he functioned, how he lived as a servant leader. Now, I want to give you another exercise. And again, this is a biblically-based exercise. And, and it's an expanded exercise. It's more traits. It's nine traits instead of seven. And some of these you've already looked at. But it's just another exercise to help you think about think about this. And various exercises are helpful. So that's why I've, I've included this. I'm not going to spend time going through this. I'm going to let you look at it at your leisure. It talks about how Jesus was a servant leader. He did not come to be served, but to serve. That's the essence of servant leadership. No orphanity, no narcissism. It's all about serving the purpose of God. He was divinely empowered. He realized that he, he could not do this in and of his own strength. This came from the Holy Spirit in him, divinely empowering him to do that. Of course, as the God-man, he's the unique individual of all creation. No, There's been no other theanthropic person, no other person that of which it is said it was a hypostatic union between God and man. So he had, but the, the point is that we, we don't have that same nature, but we are divinely empowered as he was. And we need to lean on divine empowerment to be able to do what we're called to do. He was committed to the will of God, even at the most severe point of pain and suffering and risk to his life. It was not his will, but God's will. He was submitted to human authority. You, we, you see this in when he was a 12-year-old and he was able to he'd go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the theologians and his, his parents came and found him and said, you know, you can't stay here and do this. You've got to go with us and be an apprentice carpenter. And most of us would look at that and say, well, Jesus, you can't obey your parents there. No, he obeyed his parents. He was always submitted to whatever authority he was under that submission was up until he, they, they asked him to disobey God. And it was not disobedience to God to go and obey his parents. So he went and obeyed his parents. Then we have, he empowered people. You see, when he left, he did not leave his disciples without direction 
and he did not leave them without power. He sent them power through the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them into what they were called to do. He forgave them. You see, you've got to be very clear. Forgiveness is absolutely essential. You're going to have a lot of ways to be offended. You have to be able to forgive people. So he forgave Peter, who claimed he would never deny him and then denies him. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me, but I prayed for you anyway, you know, which means I'm, I'm forgiving you. And then we have the purpose and success that Jesus displayed was always about the Father, doing the work of the Father. Jesus did not come here to do world evangelism. He did not come here to do missions. That's the mindset we have today. He came here to do the work that God assigned him to do, which included spending 18 years as a carpenter. Now, that just doesn't fit our pictures today because we have gotten to adopted such a, such a shallow view of what scripture says. And we've forgotten the orphanity that's in all of us and how that, that leads us a lot to misalign with God. We have to go back to scriptures, what does scripture say, and live like Jesus. He was here to do a work assignment. You and I are here to do a work assignment, and we need divine empowerment to do it. And when we are divinely empowered, it's not about going and evangelizing the world. It's about doing the work that God has called you to do. And in doing that, you will be light and you will be salt. And that is how God will evangelize at his sovereign pleasure, whomever it is he wishes to draw to himself. So the enemy has been very successful in distracting us and getting us, mis getting us misguided into what sounds like a good work that's really not probably good work in many cases. I think there are some people called to do world missions I don't think it's nearly as many as think they're called. I think many of them are apostate. That is, they're aban they've abandoned their post in the name of what they think is world missions. And, and usually they don't have success, very much success. Many of them repent and they go get aligned with God and they go on to live very, very faithful, fruitful lives. But they have to go through this season of, of confusion and maybe a disillusionment to find where they should be. Be clear, God has got a plan and a purpose for everyone. He's got timing for everyone and let him define it. We don't get to define it. Keep in mind being humble is the only way forward. Be humble, submitted and teachable always. And finally be metaphysically aware. God is always at work. He's always doing things even when we don't understand it or want to do it. All right, so there's an exercise here associated with this very similar to the other exercise Rate yourself on a scale of 0 to 10 how well you live in these realities. At the When you told your score, then divide by 0.9 to normalize. I encourage you to do this exercise and enjoy what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you about the truth of what real servant leadership looks like. Finally, just a few comments about what understanding the good news really is. We've been talking about this at the end of every lesson to try to give you a, a, a robust view of what it is to understand the gospel of the kingdom of God. We have a very common popular gospel today called the gospel of salvation and it's dualistic meaning that it believes Jesus is only a Lord of some things, not of everything. And that has all kinds of implications about life. And it's led to a toxic paradigm of Christianity. that's largely unfruitful. But the gospel of the kingdom of God leads to truth, and it gives us a rich, robust paradigm of Christianity, which will lead us to be fruitful, 
for this, the glory of God. So we've talked through these various concepts you can see on this chart. The middle is the concepts. The left-hand column is the dualistic understanding. The right-hand column is the holistic understanding of the kingdom. So I want to go on to the next slide and cover four points tonight very quickly. The idea of a remnant. The idea of a remnant in a dualistic paradigm is those who choose Christ. And the mindset is that everyone can. So the people that are in this mindset think it's their role to go and try to convince people, talk people into believing in Christ. But those who understand the gospel of the kingdom knows it's God that does the choosing. We don't choose Christ. He chose us. And if God chooses us, we are seeking to understand who he's choosing and serving his purpose in, with them. With those others that we don't know about, we don't know if they're chosen or not, we are to live righteous, holy lives in front of them. And that is the light and the salt that they need from us. And the Holy Spirit will re regenerate them at his sovereign pleasure, as, at his timing. And that is his will. It, is, it has nothing to do with us. And we've got to be very, very clear on that. Next is evangelism. What's evangelism? Most people, the popular view, the dualistic view, is talking about my choosing Christ. I'm talking about what, what I, I got into some kind of situation and I realized I needed Christ and I chose to follow Christ. That may be what it seemed like to you, but that's not really what happened. What really happened is Christ chose you. Just like he said in John 15 to his disciples, he said to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He was very clear on that point. So living holistically, holy lives before God is about recognizing he is the chooser. We are the chosen ones. And we need to be really thankful about that and realize only he can evangelize someone. We can't evangelize anyone. We are there to be salt and light, to live holy lives. As we live holy lives, people see Christ in us and the Holy Spirit will use that at his sovereign pleasure to bring people to himself. The idea of ministry. This is the word diakonia, which means to execute the commands of another. That has been greatly distorted today. It's used as if it's a, a special calling. You're called to the ministry, like you have a special work to do. No, every Christian is called to the work of ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, um, 11 through about 16 is a great text to look at. It talks about the evangelist, the, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, who have been given the assignment to equip the saints. The saints are all the people that know Christ. They're the saints for the work of ministry. We're equipped for the work of ministry. What I hear people doing is interpreting that as world evangelism. That is not the work of ministry. The work of executing the commands of Christ encompasses all of life because Jesus is Lord of everything. He has people called to all listed vocations. So we have to be very clear. He puts us where he puts us to serve him. And we need to be equipped to be able to execute his commands in that context, whatever that context might be. So that's, that's the difference. It's a huge difference. Call for the gospel of the kingdom of God, the calling of the ministry is the call to all saints to obey Christ in every context, all the time, no exception. He is Lord of everything. 
So that's a huge difference between what's commonly said. You hear you hear people called to the ministry. Uh, that's just the sound of dualism. That's that is not that's not holistic Christianity. And the final one I want to talk about is the purpose in life. And the the American dream is the big deal. Worldwide, if you go to Europe, it's Europe dream. If you go to Asia, it's the Asian dream. You go to South America, it's the South America dream. Wherever you go, everybody wants fun and happiness. That's what they want. And that the popular gospel of dualism appeals to that. It's like you can have all the fun you want. You just need your ticket to heaven so you don't spend eternity in hell. And you go have, your, have, have the life you want to live. Now, that's not Christianity. That is presented as Christianity commonly. That's popular, but it's not Christianity. Christianity is finding and fulfilling the purpose of God for your life. And you will never do that unless you have been born again and therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you are seeking to walk out the will of ways of God in your life, being under godly fathers in your life to help you find and fulfill that purpose of God for your life. So that's what real Christianity is. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's holistic Christianity. So may God give us the grace to move out of the popular paradigms to move away from the deception of popular thinking and move into the truth, the truth that Jesus is Lord of all. No exceptions, no questions. He is always Lord. And our role is simply to say, thank you, Lord. Your servant listens and your servant then obeys by your grace. So give us grace, Father, to be able to truly live as Christians to be light and salt wherever you send us. In Jesus' name, amen.